I'd like to welcome you to this second talk in the series. This time we're going to discuss the origins and the sources of the Quran. If you wonder why we're taking the subject under that title, it's because there are various evidences <coughs> from apocryphal Christian works, from Buddhist works, Zoroastrian, <coughs> uh, Jewish Talmudic works, uh, Midrashic works, and so on, where you can see that some of the strange teaching of the Quran, which is not consistent with biblical teaching, actually has its origins in these particular works. And you would think this would be surprising if this book was the Word of God, as Muslims claim it to be. And so would I, because it should be true to the revelations of God. It should be true to what we know is you know, the truth of God is revealed. But you do find, once you start analyzing the background of the Quran, that there are many sources that you would not expect to discover where Muhammad got much of his material. A lot of it comes from folklore. A lot of it is just mythology. But it finds its way into the Quran as not only material true to history, but divinely authorized history. Uh, <clears throat> if I can put it simply, and perhaps at the end of this lecture you'll be aware of this, if Muhammad was not the author of the Quran, and Allah was, you would expect this book to be watertight, to be a perfect revelation, and that it would probably reveal things that were remarkably correct and accurate without Muhammad himself knowing, because Allah would know the truth, and would therefore even things that were beyond Muhammad's knowledge, they would therefore come into the book and they would therefore credit it as perhaps a divine revelation. If, however, Muhammad was the author of the Quran, or not consciously, but certainly subconsciously, he was the one behind it, what you might expect to find was a sort of a reproduction of the floating knowledge of the area in which he lived, around Medina, around Makkah, of what Christians believed, what Jews believed, uh, an admixture of scripture and mythology and folklore and the typical sort of things you find in any uh, community of people scattered abroad, what they choose to believe. And you'd find this is what you'd expect to find if he was the author of the book. Just uh, what you would call a floating knowledge of different religious histories, mythologies and so on. And unfortunately this is exactly what you find as we're going to see in this lecture. I'm going to begin just firstly with a few non-Arabic words in the Quran. Well, I must tell you there are many, but we're going to go into one or two, just for the simple reason that the Quran not only claims to be the perfect book of Allah, but it claims to be a perfect Arabic text, that it's written in the purest Arabic, according to the Quran itself, and that as a result, this credits it as the word of God. In other words, in the uncreated speech of God up there, of Allah, up in the heavens on a tablet, a special tablet that has been preserved in the heavens presumably since before the world was made, the Quran was inscribed in the purest Arabic language. And although Arabic uh, in time in history was developed as a typical Semitic language, has tremendous affinities with Hebrew and other languages in the area, yet the Muslims will tell you that Allah saw all that or whatever and gave us this book which is perfect to this day. So you would not expect to find non-Arabic words in the Qur'an, very distinctly called an Qur'anan Arabian, Arabic Qur'an, Surah 12 verse 2, Surah 13 verse 37, Surah 42 verse 7. The amazing thing is the very word Qur'an itself is not an Arabic word, certainly not originally. The word means recitation and it comes 
from the word Qur'a'a in the Qur'an, which is only found about four times. And wherever it appears, that word from which it's derived is never spoken of the Qur'an text itself. It's spoken of other texts prior to the Qur'an, Surah 10 verse 94, uh, Surah 17 verse 93, a book that some of his opponents quoted. In other cases, it's dealing with the fate of unbelievers in terms of uh, a recitation of it, whatever. It comes from the Syriac Christian word kiriani, which was a word meaning a recitation or a reading of a lesson in a church, for example. And you'll find throughout the Quran that especially when the book moves towards biblical material or Christian or Jewish material specifically, that you find these foreign words getting into the Quran. When I say foreign, you might say, well, if a prophet's name has a Hebrew form, it's hardly surprising if the prophet was a Jew himself. The Quran would not necessarily uh, give you an Arabic form of it. But the strange thing is that at times you find that while the prophet had a Hebrew name, uh, the New Testament will give you a Greek translation of the name, the Greek form of it, just as a Muslim might say you'd have an Arabic form. But what the Quran does is then to Arabicize the Greek word rather than the Hebrew word and then gives you something totally unique. For example, the name of Jonah, which is Yonah in Hebrew, but in Greek is Yunus, and in the Quran it is Yunus. So as you can see that it has a clear secondary origin, not even original origin. It's not even an Arabized form, Arabicized form of the original Hebrew word. It's simply given an Arabic equivalent to a translated Greek form found in the New Testament. Um, perhaps in the Arabic New Testament even. So you have Ilyas for Elijah as well, also from Greek. There are many other words in the Quran which have foreign origins. In fact, uh, Arthur Jeffrey wrote a whole book called The Foreign Vocabulary of the Quran and he went into the background of numerous words, uh, oh, infinite number of them almost, in the text that are not originally Arabic at all. So to simply say it is a pure Arabic Quran is um, a definition that needs to be reconsidered. The Quran calling itself precisely that. But when you move away to other words in the Quran and to find out what their meaning is, you get more and more this picture of dependency on other sources. Even the word Allah, which of course to the Muslims is the eternal name of God, is not an Arabic word. Uh, you could perhaps dispute that and say, well, Allah, a God, is and that perhaps the word Allah came from simply a sort of fusion of Allah, the God. But you don't find that anywhere in the earliest records. In uh, the Syriac, however, you find the word Allah, which is a Christian name for Allah or for God, and is the closest you will come to perhaps the name Allah himself. And interestingly, even the Christian Bible in Arabic, both Old and New Testaments, uses the name Allah for God. So, and the original derivation of that is almost certainly the Hebrew Elohim. From Elohim to Allah to Allah. So interesting to find that. Even these key words like Quran, Allah and others, you can trace back to scriptures and even to translations into other languages in between. But many other words in the Quran have certain meanings that come from other sources as well, other than Arabic sources. For example, the word mizan, which is the Quranic word for balance, which you find in Surah 17 and verse 35. Very early on, this was recognized as a loan word. 
Um, what I mean by that is that a number of the earliest Islamic scholars of the Quran were quite free and open about this. They actually went looking for words in the Quran that uh, had Syriac, Greek, Hebrew or other origins. If I mention some of the scholars of Islam who have done this, you have Suyuti, Salabi, Sijistani. Um, didn't worry them that these words were foreign origin. In fact, they looked for the meaning of the words in the, in the foreign languages. And your word mizan, which is a common uh, Arabic expression in the Quran, means, of course, a balance or a measure. Um, in the Quran, I'll give it to you from Surah 42, verse 17. Allah it is who sent down the scripture in truth and the balance. And what will make you realize that the hour may be well at hand? And in Surah 7, verses 8 to 9, you find a definition of this, that those who, whose uh, scales are light in terms of good works and good deeds are going to be sent down to the lowest hell. Whereas on the other hand, those whose works are heavy, the, the good works outweigh the bad, well, they will go into Janat. And it is the balance that's going to determine that, the Mizan. Now, that's a common um, sort of uh, religious expression or religious concept in many of the religions before Islam. The Muslims actually believe that every single human individual will have to walk across a Sirat on the Day of Judgment, a bridge. And that it's going to depend very, very heavily how good your deeds were, how true you were to God, whether you were a good Muslim or not. And if you were, even though this sirat is razor thin, you'll be able to get right across it to the far side without any difficulty. But otherwise, if the mizan is not well balanced, if the balance is out of shape, then you're going to fall off either way into the fire. And it's very interesting that that concept comes from the Persian Pahlavi book called the Rashnu. It was a common Zoroastrian uh, belief where the angel of justice holds a balance in his hands. And if it sort of goes this way for you, well, like the old Roman gladiator contest, then the finger was down. But if it goes on the other way, then the finger is up and you're okay. Interestingly, this ex uh, concept of the mizan, the balance, has its origins also in another text, apocryphal work, called the Testament of Abraham. This is again Jewish uh, folklore. It uh, doesn't contain so much biblical stuff. as all sorts of folklore that developed around Abraham in years later. Three manuscripts of this book survived, two in Greek and one in Arabic. And once again, the expression occurs, the balance. And here it's Abraham now, conveniently, who sees an angel with a balance in his hand recording the good deeds and the evil deeds of any individual. And whichever way they go is going to determine whether you go to heaven or to hell which is very strange in the light of the fact that the Quran supports the Bible without going into any detail, that what justified Abraham before God was simply his faith. The uh, Quran talks freely of the Millah of Abraham, of Ibrahim, but different to the Christian concept. Millah in Arabic uh, basically means submission to Allah, just an unquestioning submission. Whereas when you look through the original Hebrew scriptures, uh, the faith of Abraham was something very different. In fact, it would even make him question God if he was hearing things that made him doubt God's faithfulness. In other lectures, we will come back to this. But the relationship between Abraham and God was based not on a good works and a, an evil deeds kind of balance. Not at all. Nothing remotely in the early uh, chapters of Genesis to support that idea. Quite the opposite. Um, Abraham was declared righteous. God simply said to him in Genesis 15, I will give you a son and I'll bless you. 
and all the nations of the world will be blessed through him. And Abraham believed God, and God said, that's fine. As long as you believe me, I'll reckon it to you as righteousness. It looks ridiculously easy. But in fact, it was the beginning of a new relationship between him and God, where God tested that faith time and time again, until finally it reached its supreme test in being willing to offer his son for God. Uh, here is where the, um, the Quran confuses biblical text where it picks up the, the faith of Abraham, talks time and again of the Milata Ibrahim, faith of Abraham, and then comes down to this real degrading concept of a balance of your good deeds and your bad deeds, and that'll depend whether you go to the left or to the right. Nothing was further from the mind of Abraham than anything like that. And he's certainly nowhere in the Bible do you record that he ever saw an angel who was just weighing up good deeds and bad deeds, like a Examination at a college, 51% you pass and 49% and you fail. Uh, it's not going to be like that, certainly not according to the Bible and by the way, not according to the rest of the Quran either. But the amazing thing about the Quran is that it not only sees these good people who will go to Jannat or to heaven, to Jannat or Furdos, and all the evil people will go to Jahannam, to the fire of hell, but it sees a group in between, uh, the righteous and the wicked. In fact, I've even seen Islamic uh, paintings where you have this first group who are in, dressed in pure white as the true faithful believers in God. And then you have the second group who are sort of half good and half bad. I don't know whether they'd got 50% in their examination, neither passed nor failed, quite how it ended. But in the Quran, you've got the same concept of the righteous, the wicked, and another group in between. I've actually picked this up in a number of Gnostic texts as well. It seems to be a sort of widespread mythology of the time, typical of the sort of floating knowledge that gets into the Quran. And uh, these people in this Islamic painting are dressed up in what looks like a checkerboard. It's, uh, it's got black and white squares all over it, half black and half white. Um, quite where they end up is everybody's imagination. But it's a typical sort of... A, religious concept of the day floating around in different religions that finds its way into the Quran. By the way, just to emphasize that, it's even found in the Egyptian Book of the Dead as well. All these tend to put question marks against this alleged divine origin of the Quran. Even the word Rab, which is a common Quranic word meaning Lord, Rabbil Alameen, the Lord of the worlds, uh, it seems that Muhammad was confused about this because he picks up a different meaning to the word as the one found in Hebrew. It's a Hebrew word, as everybody knows. We get the word rabbi, teacher, from it. Prior to Islam, the word rab basically referred to masters, teachers, um, uh, generals in armies, and so on. It was never used of deities, but I've just given you a, an expression, rabbil alamin, the lord of the worlds. In Surah 1 verse 2 in the Fatiha, a very common expression. And here in this passage and elsewhere, you find all the time that the word Rab means a God, a Lord, not just uh, as it was prior to Islam in all religious uh, discussions and beliefs of the different people around, especially the Hebrews, where it simply meant human masters or great men. Um, in the Quran, it's quite clear that Muhammad knew that the expression was Hebrew because he talks of the Akbarahum, that is the priests, the Jewish priests, and that comes from the word Rab as well. But he mistook it as lords, not as priests or rabbis, but basically as gods. And so he accuses the Jewish people of actually venerating 
their Arbaban, their, their masters, their lords, and thought that they were actually different gods, that they, that they had deified their priests. When you go into just word uses in the Quran, you find this sort of problem time and time again that you get confused because it seems that the author of the Quran was not too sure at times exactly what a word meant, particularly with the foreign words. And as he borrows them, so they get confused meanings in the Quran. And as you can see here, a complete misinterpretation of a Jewish word. But we go further to actual Jewish folklore because here you find some uncanny reproductions in the Quran of stories in the heart of Jewish mythology and really street stuff, little stories that people would talk in small communities that no Jew really believed were true to history. I'm going to begin with the murder of Abel. The Quran doesn't mention Cain or Abel by name, but it gives you the story of their two offerings to God, Surah 5, verse 30 to 35, and how the one was accepted and the other was rejected. And of course, that's repeated in Genesis 4, verse 4. And following that is a dialogue between the two brothers, which is not repeated in the Bible, where Cain says, because of this, I'm going to surely kill you. And then Abel <clears throat> says a few things in reply to him. It doesn't stop Cain, so he kills him. And then uh, you find that in Surah 534 comes something that has no parallel in the Bible at all. After Abel had been killed, Cain didn't know what to do with his body. Then Allah sent a raven who scratched in the ground to show him how to hide the shame of his brother. You wonder where this comes from. As he's standing there, what do I do with Abel's corpse? I've murdered him. Now what? And he doesn't know. And this, strangely enough, in Jewish folklore, the emphasis here is not so much on the terrible evil deed that, I, that Cain did, but on the correct way of disposing of um, deceased bodies once people were, were murdered or whatever. Strange how religious formality comes more important than the moral of the thing. But it gets repeated, this story, in the Quran, and it comes from the Perkai Rabbi Eliezer, which is a book in the Midrash, uh, the part of the Jewish Talmud, where the same uh, question is raised by the Jewish people as to what to do with a corpse when a person dies. And in the Quran, Allah himself sends a raven, and, and he happens to watch, and he sees the raven scratch in the ground and uh, cover his, uh, its mate that is deceased. So, ah, I'll do the same. I'll bury him in the ground. Well, you find in Surah 5, verse, uh, sorry, in, in the Perkar Rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer, the same story. Only in that case, in the Midrash, it is Adam, not um, Cain himself. It is Adam who comes across the body of Abel and is not sure what to do about it. And then he buries it. It's a far more dignified story than in the Quran, where it's Cain who actually decides to, to bury Abel, and the Quran seems more concerned about the right method of burial than what's actually been done to him. But in Surah 535, in the very next verse, you find another strange statement which has no biblical equivalent. For that reason we inscribe for the children of Israel that if anyone slew another person, other than for murder or spreading corruption in the earth, it would be as if he slew all mankind. And if you saved the life of one, it would be as if he had saved all mankind. This is a standard Mishnah text in uh, Hebrew that you find as well, which says exactly the same thing, a little bit more detail. I'll give it to you from the Mishnah Sanhedrin, uh, 4 verse 5, chapter 4 and passage 5. And there it says, We find it said in the case of Cain who murdered his brother, The voice of your brother's bloods cried to me. Genesis 4 verse 10. 
So the commentary says, it is not said blood in the singular, but blood's in the plural. That is not only your blood, but the blood of your seed as well. So therefore, the Mishnah says, man was created single in order to show that to him who kills a single individual, it will be reckoned as if he has slain the whole race. But if you preserve the life of a single individual, it's counted that you've preserved the whole race. Story in the Quran and in the Mishnah almost the same. Basically, the principle is that, sure, you can execute someone for some wrongdoing, that's fine. But if you kill anybody else, if you murder a person unlawfully or unjustly, well, you've wiped out all his offspring. The whole uh, generation, the whole heritage of Abel was wiped out. So the Quran says that's how serious it is, that if you do something like that. And however you feel about that, the fact is it's just a repeat of what is in the, the Hebrew Mishnah. I'm not going to argue this so much from the point of that it's found in a Talmudic work, Mishnah being part of the Jewish Talmud, uh, rather than in Scripture. But just the nature of it. In the Mishnah, it's a rabbi's opinion. That's all it is. The rabbi says that, and he gives a reason. He goes to the Scripture and he says, in the Bible, in the Hebrew Scripture, in Genesis, God said to um, Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. But he says, but it's not there in the singular. It's bloods. Plural word is used. So he says, so from this, we can draw the conclusion or a teaching that says that if you destroy somebody, you destroy his whole offspring, his bloods that follow him. But if you save the life of one person, oh, it'll be counted to you as if you saved his whole generation that follows him. Now, this is where the difficulty comes in. You have a Mishnaic uh, interpretation of a biblical verse repeated in the Quran as something that God himself said. The only conclusion you can draw is that Muhammad had heard the story from Jewish people, had heard this interpretation, wasn't aware of the fact that it was purely a rabbi commenting on a biblical verse, on an anomaly in a biblical verse, namely that God spoke in the plural of, of Abel's blood as bloods. <coughs> We move on to the story of Abraham and the idols in the Quran, which is another story that has a Jewish background. The Quran says that in Surah 37, 91 to 92, it says that <clears throat> Abraham was a person who challenged his people on their idolatry. <clears throat> and he worshipped Allah. He, he, he would look at the sun and he refused to worship that because it's set and so on. He found anything that he looked on in the world that might be worthy of his worship just seemed to fail him. It just, just, just doesn't seem to have any value. So he said, I will only worship the Lord Allah, who is the God of the worlds. And then he finds that his father and his people have this temple nearby, which is full of idols. It's got one very big one and a number of others. Not in the Quran that is mentioned. I'll come back to that. But basically the Quran just speaks of the idols that fill this temple. And he walks up to them and he says, why do you not eat? Why do you not feed yourself? Uh, puts food in front of them and says, eat. And when they don't, he then breaks them all but the biggest one. And he leaves it like that. And when they come back and they say to him, what have you done? And he said, did you destroy these idols? He said, no, ask the biggest one. Let him tell you uh, which, who, who did this. And then they're angry with uh, Abraham and they decide they want to destroy him. But as it so happens, he gets delivered by the hand of Allah from the fire he was going to be put into. That's again repeated in Surah 21 verses 62 to 68. And the Quran says in Surah 21 verse 69 to 70, 
We said, Allah says, O fire, be cooled and peaceful for Ibrahim. And when they had devised a stratagem against him, we made them the losers. Nice, vague Quranic way of saying that uh, however you conspire against my prophet, uh, Allah conspires better against you and makes everything work out for the prophet in the end. Now we find the same story here in the Jewish book, the Midrash Rabbah, which is part of the Jewish Talmud. And in this case, the people come in and they say to Abraham, um, what have you done? Uh, have you destroyed all our idols? And Abraham says, no, no, I put food between each one of them, in front of them, so that they could eat. And the smaller idols decided to go ahead and feed themselves, and the biggest idol got angry, and he just had slaughtered all the others, and that's why you find the biggest idol has survived and the others are all been destroyed. So his family and the people around say to him, what, you know, um, how can we believe this? You must have done this. No, he says, speak to the biggest idol and ask him, let him tell you what happened. So they say, but you know that these gods can't hear us speak. Abraham says, what, are you hearing what your mouth says? <laughs> that your gods can't hear us speak? It's just a typical Jewish story that's there to just sort of reflect on pagan idolatry as against this faithful prophet who holds his faith in God against all circumstances. But it's part of what every Jew knows is just folklore and just mythology. It's in the Quran, though adapted as true to history. And once again, with a few variations, which is what you would expect when somebody not speaking the same language picks up the story secondhand and records it as he hears it. But once again, if you say, as Muslims might say, oh, but the story is true. If it's in the Quran, then it's true to history. And perhaps the Jewish people took a true story out of their scripture that somebody removed and just put it in their Talmud because they remembered it. Once again, you've got a difficulty if you're a Muslim because you can show where the Jewish story came from. You can show that it is a myth uh, brought around a biblical text and again, a misinterpretation of it. Just as uh, in the previous case here, you find that Jonathan ben Utziel in the Targum, uh, the recorder says that Genesis 15, 7 says that I am the Lord who brought you out of the fire of the Chaldees. But he's misquoting it because the actual word in Hebrew is Ur, I am the Lord who brought you out of the city of the Chaldees. You know the word Ur is a common Hebrew word. For example, the city of Jerusalem comes from the Hebrew words Urushalam, city of peace. But he got it wrong and he read the word as Or, as the fire of the Chaldees. And so this story just embellished itself as it went along, got around uh, Abraham. And in the end, Abraham was about to be thrown into the fire like Shadrach, Meshach or Abednego. And in the same way as they were delivered, so Abraham becomes delivered as well, and God saves him from the fire. But as you can see, that comes as a clear embellishment around a misinterpretation of a biblical verse, versus Genesis 15, verse 7. And Jonathan quotes this as the time where, according to Jewish legend, Nimrod threw him into the fire, but he came out unharmed. So you can see here that you have strange mythology out of Hebrew works finding its way into the Quran is true to history. And I emphasize this. This is not something the Muslims can make capital out of and say, no, but the story is true. Because in each case, you can pick up the biblical text around which the mythology is built. In the previous case, the uh, plural used for the word blood. 
and in this case a misinterpretation of Genesis 15 verse 7. But you find many other Jewish origins in the Quran uh, that are not again biblical in, in nature. Surah 59 verse 21 says, Had we sent down this Quran upon a mountain, you would have seen it humble itself and cleave asunder from fear of Allah. In other words, if the Quran had come down, the mountain would just have split in half. In the Targum, again from the Talmud, to Judges 5 verse 5, we read that the mountains quaked before the Lord. This is in the scripture. Yon Sinai before the Lord, God of Israel. And again, the Targum says, just very much as the Quran says, that the mountain actually shook or tended to break up. Whereas you know that it's a figurative expression. The mountains quaked before the Lord, Yon Sinai, the God of Israel. But the tradition in the Targum is simply that uh, Mount Sinai was humbled itself to receive the Torah. And this is why it came down on Mount Sinai in the wilderness that originally Mounts Tabor and Hermon, which are in the land of Canaan or the land of Israel, were supposed to receive it. But they were too proud to, to accept this. So when the, uh, uh, the Lord spoke and gave the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel, when the law came down, it was on Mount Sinai in the wilderness, simply because at that time this mountain was more humble than the others and was free to receive it. But working on that expression, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the Quran <laughs> picks itself up and says, if this Quran had come down on a mountain, you would have seen itself shake and shiver and break itself apart. And once again, you can see that a Jewish origin, a Talmudic origin, is being taken as the basis for a story in the Quran, which is just adapted to just give it a little bit of a flair, a little bit of color, perhaps. <clears throat> a very interesting text in the Quran is Surah 20, verse 85, where it says, We have tested the people in your absence, and As-Samiri has led them astray. Now this was at the time that Moses went up onto the top of Mount Sinai, as we know from the uh, book of Exodus, where he conversed with the Lord after God had given the Ten Commandments to the people. And in the 40-day absence while Moses was fasting, as we know at the end of it, Exodus says that God said to him, go down to your people, they've corrupted themselves and they have made a golden calf and they're worshipping it. But where does this come from? Who is As-Samiri? Who is this, the, the Samiri, who happens to have led them astray? According to the Bible, there's no reference as to who the original instigator was, but Aaron, the high priest, was persuaded to actually head up the conspiracy against God and allow this golden calf to be, to be made. But according to the Quran, As-Samiri brought the calf out and it actually lowed. It actually moved like a, like a cow does, and because it did, because this inanimate object, this golden calf, started uh, actually moving, seemed to have come alive. So the people said, well, this is a true God and we worship it. Now again, I go back to the Perkai Rabbi Eliezer, which is a Jewish book, again, the same one I mentioned earlier from the story of Abraham and the idols. And this one says that the calf came out lowing, that as it was actually formulated, it started moving. Rabbi Jehuda says that it was Samael, the angel of death who actually entered it and started lowing through it to deceive the people of Israel. Well, we're getting a little bit closer. Samael, Samiri, maybe. You can see certainly a connection here somewhere. Once again, the Quran seems to just drift from the original story and corrupt it even further. But why a Samiri? 
I mean, why does it use that expression rather than Asamael, the, the angel of death? Well, even Muslim commentators have said that the word means the Samaritan. It was a Samaritan who corrupted the people of Israel and led them astray. Well, you could say there might be some logic in that because the Samaritans were always believed to be people that uh, were not true to God. As we know from uh, the New Testament, particularly John 4, Samaria was between Galilee and, uh, and Judea. And these people had different beliefs. They were basically despised by the Jews who used to go down to Jerusalem by uh, sidestepping the area and so on. So you might think, oh, well, that's fine. You can understand why the Quran says it was one of these renegades, a Samiri, a Samaritan, who'd misled them. The only problem is that Samaritans didn't exist at that time. Samaritans were a group that actually only came together a number of centuries later, and we only really find mention of them in the New Testament. So where do we get this from, a Samiri? Where does it come from? Well, you have to go back to the Old Testament to the time when uh, Jeroboam, who led the people of Israel astray by creating two golden calves and setting them up in Dan and Bethel in Samaria, uh, did this to stop the people worshipping at the temple in Jerusalem because Solomon's son Rehoboam remained the king of Judah, officially king of Israel. But Jeroboam led the people off and said, no, the other ten tribes of Israel, lying for the Levites being the exception, um, took them off into the northern part of Israel and said, you will not go down to Jerusalem to worship at the temple of God that Solomon built. You will worship here at Dan and Bethel. And he put two calves up there. And now you can see where this whole story is coming from because we had a golden calf in the wilderness, but now we have two golden calves in Samaria. And this is where the confusion comes from. It is a Sumeri means a Sumerian, presumably referring to Jeroboam himself. Confusing Samael, the angel of death, with Sumeri and so on. Let me read these words to you from Hosea chapter 8, verses 5 to 6. God says, I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. Oh, there you've got it. My anger burns against them. How long will it be till they appear in Israel? A workman made it. It is not of God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Oh, now you can see where the confusion comes from. Muhammad has synchronized the two stories. The calf that was in the wilderness that came out and which is supposed to have lowed with the calf that uh, was set up in Samaria. And that's where this expression, Asamiri, comes in. But of course, it's a different story many hundreds of years later that's being referred to in Hosea. Jeroboam set that calf up, and that was in the land of Samaria. Whereas the Quran takes that and completely gets the paradox that you find in the book, where ultimately it is said to be the calf that came out at the time of Aaron and the exodus of Israel. Um, not always easy to explain these things, to perhaps get the point, but consistently, as you look through the Quran, you find these little points where Jewish history, sometimes mythological, sometimes biblical, either comes out in the Quran as mythology now true to scripture, or alternatively a confusion of the original story and mixing things up. Um, that is common. There are many other incidents in the Quran of this nature, particularly looking at Jewish records. But I'll move on to Christian origins, because here you find very much the same thing again as we've just seen with the Samaritan or the Samiri, Samaria, the calf of Samaria, confused with the calf in the 
wilderness of Sinai. Here we find a similar confusion, and this time it really gets compounded. It goes around the story of Mary in the Quran, the mother of Jesus. Now, Mary is very highly regarded in Islam. In fact, she's the only woman mentioned by name in the Quran, and she has a whole chapter named after her, Surah 19, the Surah to Maryam. In Surah 3, verse 42, we read that Mary was chosen by Allah and purified above the nations. And the Quran mentions something of her birth, which the Bible does not. In Surah 3, verse 35, it says, Behold, a woman of Imran said, Lord, I dedicate to you what is in my womb for your special service. So accept this of me, for you are the hearer and the knower. She thought that the child, this woman is unnamed, the child that she was going to bear was going to be a son, a prophetic figure, whatever, and said, I'm dedicating my son to you before he's even born. But then the Quran says that she was surprised to find that when it was born that it was a female. And I said, all right, well, anyway, I've dedicated it to God, so she pledges the child to God. And then we find that Zachariah, who was the father of John the Baptist, as we know from the Bible, he was the priest at the time, so he cared for her in her mirab, which is a, in, a, in a mosque, it's a little niche that gives the direction of Mecca, but the word in Arabic basically means a chamber. And Zachariah was strange to find that when he came to the mirab, the little chamber where Mary, the mother of Jesus, was, that she had food to eat every day and he didn't know where it came from. And Mary simply said to him, Allah provides, uh, Surah 3, verse 37. Where do you get this from? There's nothing like this in the Bible. You go into Muslim tradition and you'll find it commonly stated that the mother of Mary who had this desire to dedicate what was in her womb to God was Hannah, named Hannah in more than one place. Well, we have to get beyond the Bible to various sources to try and put this story together. Firstly, in the Protevangelium of James, the less typical apocryphal work, as all Christians know, just as the Jews know that Targum works and Talmud and others are not true to history. So we know that these so-called books, Gnostic Gospels, various things that followed afterwards are not true. We find that a woman named Anna, which is <clears throat> same as Hannah, a woman named Anna, but now this is the Greek equivalent of the name, prayed to God and she dedicated her child to, to God. And she named it Mary and she stayed in the temple, that is Mary, not in a mirab, a chamber, but in the Jewish temple itself. And she was fed every day by an angel. And now you can see where the Quran gets the story from initially, because this is very much what the Quran was saying. In another book, The Coptic History of the Virgin, a, a really obscure apocryphal work that you hardly find mentioned even in many Christian books on apocryphal literature. These are so obscure, these texts that we're quoting. The doves used to bring her food and angels, and angels did the same. Not only did angels come down, but doves used to come down and they used to feed her. And now we find that Mary is being confused with Elijah because in his time, in 1 Kings 17 verse 6, Elijah was fed by ravens, as you know, when he went out of the land of Israel and Ahab was looking for him and was determined to try and find him. He'd caused the drought that had come on the nation. But ravens were sent to feed him. But then we even find again that Mary has been confused with the mother of Samuel, who really was Hannah. In 1 Samuel 1 verse 11, we find that this Hannah prayed to God for a child. 
And in her case, the child when it was born was Samuel, and she dedicated Samuel to the service of God, and as you know, became the great high priest of the time. And it's amazing how all these anachronisms come, but you can see the, the author of the Quran decide who it is, it's your choice. Muslims believe it was Allah, tend to kind of think it was Muhammad. And as we look at it, if it was Muhammad, you can say, well, he, he misunderstood these things, he was confused. But the confusion here just gets compounded all along the way. Because let me read these words to you from Luke 2, 36 to 37. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years from her virginity and as a widow till she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. <laughs> it really gets confusing because this is the, another Anna or Hannah, depending on take the Greek or Hebrew, and this woman was in the temple of Jerusalem all the time. And she was the one who never departed from it, fasting every day. And you can see that now the author of the Quran has confused the Hannah who, who dedicated the child in a womb to the Lord with the Hannah. In this case, it is Mary who's supposed to have been in the chamber, her daughter. But of course, in the New Testament, it's another Anna. It's another Hannah. It's this one who actually, as we know, was actually fasting and praying there every day. And she did not depart from the temple. Um, amazing to find how many people Mary is confused with in this story. But there's still one more. Uh, Surah 19, verse 27 to 28 says, O Mary, Ya Maryam, you have brought an amazing thing. O sister of Aaron, your father was not an evil man, nor was your mother an impure woman. Now this is a reference to the birth of Jesus without him having a human father, because the Quran repeats the story of the virgin birth of Jesus in Surah 3 and Surah 19. <clears throat> but in this case, um, you find, again, material that's not in the Bible. This time, Mary's kinswoman look at her and say, what have you done? You've had a child out of wedlock. You know, you come from a very honorable family. What have you gone and done? And uh, the story is that she points to the cradle, and in the cradle, Jesus speaks and says, I am the servant of Allah, and so on, and redeems Mary. But the interesting thing here is what Mary is called in this passage, O sister of Aaron. In the Quran, it is, Ya Uhta Harun. Now, who is Harun? Well, we know from the Bible that there's only one Harun, and that is Aaron. Aaron in the Bible was the brother of who? Moses. And in the Quran, he's actually called Harun Akhi. That is Moses, the brother of Aaron. How does Muhammad manage here to confuse Mary, the sister of Aaron, with who she really was? I mean, if uh, Aaron was the brother of Moses, how does the mother of Jesus become the sister of, of Aaron? Well, if you go to Exodus 15, verse 20, you find that there was another Mary who was the sister of Aaron, well-known, Miriam, the one who sang the song, compiled the song of praise to God after they'd come through the Red Sea into the Sinai wilderness. And it's sad because in this case, you can see again that not only has Mary been confused with Elijah, being confused with Hannah or the mother of Mary, confused with the Anna of the New Testament and the mother of Samuel. But it, it just becomes so cloudy here that she even gets confused with the Miriam, the real sister of Aaron, who was also Moses' sister. The reason is the name is the same, just like the name Hannah. The two Hannahs, the one in the Old Testament, who was the mother of Samuel, and the Hannah of the New Testament, who was in the temple night and day, 
Here you had a Miriam, sister of Aaron at the time of Moses, and a Miriam, mother of Jesus. And once again, Muhammad manages to confuse the two and uh, ends up with a, a story that just doesn't make really any sense at all. Let me read you an incident from the Sahih Muslim, uh, volume 3, page 1169. Mukhira bin Shubha reported, When I came to Najran, that's a little town not far from Mecca in the Arabian desert, they, the Christians of Najran, actually asked me, this is Muhammad speaking, they actually asked me, You read, O sister of Aaron, Hadrat Maryam in the Quran, whereas Moses was born much before Jesus. When I came back to Allah's Messenger, I asked him about that, whereupon he said, this is the answer he gives. Let me just explain what's happening here. The, the, uh, the follower of Muhammad is saying, the Quran says that Jesus is the sister of Aaron. Now, when I went down to the Christians of Najran, this is in Muhammad's lifetime, even they queried me on this and said, how do you manage to get such an anachronism, such a confusion as to read uh, mistake Mary, the mother of Jesus, with the actual sister of Aaron. This is Muhammad's answer. The people of the old age used to give their names to people after the names of apostles and pious persons who'd gone before them. <laughs> Not sure where he got that from, but he actually in his lifetime had to find himself pushed to give an answer to this particular question. But I can't accept the answer given by the Prophet of Islam. Because in the Quran, Uhtun meaning sister, is always a blood sister. You never called someone the sister of David or the sister of Moses or the sister of Abraham. Even in Hebrew language, you could call somebody one of the daughters of Aaron, which is what Elizabeth uh, was, the mother of John the Baptist. You could call people son of David, like Jesus is, or son of Abraham in a lineage and jump the people in between and just say son of or daughter of, meaning a descendant, but never brother or sister. That it was always used, meaning the blood brother, the blood sister at the same time. Um, in the Quran, that expression, uktun, is used in that context all the time as well. Surah 4, verse 12, verse 23, and verse 176. And Muslim commentators try to get around this by saying, well, Mary must have been related to Aaron in some way. And that just makes it more difficult again because Mary was from the tribe of Judah. We know that from Luke 1.32. Great emphasis on that in the scripture because Jesus came from the line of David and David was descended from Judah as the two genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke 3 state. So she couldn't have been related to Aaron at all. And the relationship between Mary and the line of Aaron, which was the Levite tribe, couldn't be further. It's quite clear that the Quran is confusing the two Marys. Nothing more than that. Hebrews 7, 11 to 16 says that Jesus was born not according to a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. In other words, he became a priest <clears throat> from his birth, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not from the line of Levi, which is a law concerning bodily descent, but he receives his priesthood in a different way clearly distinguishing him from the line of Aaron. So his mother too is clearly distinguished by implication. But in the Quran, somehow Mary becomes the sister of Aaron, the Ukta Harun. Number 659 says, Jochebed bore to Amran, Moses, Aaron and Miriam. And in closing at this point, we find exactly the same thing again. 
a hint as to where the error comes from. Because Amran was the father of Moses, just as Miriam was the sister of Aaron and father Amran, the father of Aaron as well. In the Quran, Maryam, the mother of Jesus, is called Abnata Imran in Surah 66 verse 12, which means the daughter of Imran or the Hebrew Amran. And here the confusion is finally just settled. There's no question that Muhammad got this wrong. He's, he knows there's a Miriam whose father is Amran and whose brother is Aaron. But he confuses the mother of Jesus. And this is very strange to do that because there were almost 2,000 years between the two personalities. But Muhammad somehow gets Mary, the mother of Jesus, locked in as a sister of Moses, Aaron, and also a daughter of Amran. Um, I just don't see any way around that argument. Let me move on to Zoroastrian and Buddhist sources. Others here as well. The Zoroastrian Avesta is a clear Quranic source. The 99 names of Allah in Islam, you find 75 of Ahura Mazda, the god of the Avesta, similarly recorded. Different names. The Quran has names all over the book for Allah. So you find that this source also has different names for its god as well. But some of these names are identical. For example, Al-Basir, the seeing is found in Surah 22, verse 75, and in the Ormaz Yast, which is the, uh, the Zoroastrian book, in chapters 8 and 12. Al-Hakim, the wise in the Quran, Surah 4, 158, repeated in this other book in chapter 15. Al-Alim, the knowing, repeated in the Zoroastrian work, Surah 15, verse 25, and from the Ormaz Yast of chapter 12. And then finally, Al-Hamid, the praiseworthy, Surah 34.6, repeated in Omazias number 12. It's uncanny to find all these um, similarities in the Quran with these other books. Zoroastrian uh, religion was actually a, a mystical religion. It wasn't a legal re religion at all, like Islam is. And yet the Quran borrows all these different texts, these different names, these different words, these different stories, and on top of it confuses the names of Old Testament personalities. And you can only conclude from this that the Quran itself is not actually the book of God, but that it is, in fact, a book that is dependent on many other religions. And to close, Buddhist origins. Well, I'm going to give you a Quranic passage again on Mary, this time the birth of Jesus, sort of 19, 22 to 26, and it reads as follows. So she conceived him and withdrew with him to a remote place. The pangs of childbirth came over, over her at the trunk of the palm tree. And she says, I would that I had died before this and become forgotten. But someone cried to her from below it and said, Do not grieve, your Lord has provided a stream below you. Shake also the palm trunk and it will give you fresh ripe dates to fall upon you. Eat, drink and be comforted. Now this has no biblical equivalent at all. In the Christian apocryphal work, Historia Nativitat Mariae, you find a similar story, but this time it happens during the flight to Egypt after Jesus is born, where Jesus spoke and a tree actually bows down to Mary to feed her. Very similar. But the most important thing is that this story has direct origins in Buddhist works, in the Pali Canon, which goes back much further. In the Nidanaksa Jatakam, 
chapter 1, passage 50 to 53, you find that Maya plucked leaves from the salt tree and that the tree actually burned down to Maya. Maya was the mother of Buddha. And that the tree fed her and literally bowed down as the other apocryphal work states and as the Quran says of the mother of Jesus. And the same, suddenly the pangs of childbirth come on Maya and the Quran is confusing the two stories. The Buddhist story with the birth of Buddha himself and the pain his mother went through and the tree that bowed down to him clearly confused uh, and in the Quran applied to Mary and the birth of Jesus by mistake. Once again, not only borrowing from other sources, but confusing them, getting them mixed up, misidentifying them. Um, I'm not knocking at the book. I'm just giving you straightforward factual conclusions from what we're reading. And then you find in the other book, Buddhist book, the Kariya Pitakam, in chapter 1, passage 9, that in his former life, Buddha was a prince. Trees bowed down to him and children with him. And in Surah 19, um, Mary points to Jesus in the cradle and he speaks from the cradle and says this in this passage in verses 29 to 32, Inni Abdullah, I am the servant of Allah. Now, you wonder where does the Quran get this from, that Jesus actually spoke from the cradle? Well, you find in Surah 5 verse 113, the words here, O Jesus, remember my favor to you and your mother, how I strengthened you with the Holy Spirit so that you preach to mankind both in the cradle and in maturity. Well, the source here, firstly, again, is an apocryphal Christian source in the same way, the gospel of the infancy. But in this case, as recorded in the Arabic text, very interesting that only an Arabic text of this apocryphal work survives. So it's just where Muhammad would have borrowed from, something floating around that area. Here Jesus says from the cradle, Anahuwa ibnullah, and I am the son of God. But that's a little bit too strong for Muhammad, denying that Jesus is the son of God. So he changes it in the Quran to Inni Abdullah, I am the servant of God. But apart from putting his correct theology around it as he sees it, he again borrows from an apocryphal Christian work, and both of them have an original Jewish, uh, sorry, Buddhist source. In the Buddha Karita and in the Lalita Vistara, two different Buddhist works, you found that Buddha in his infancy spoke to the lotus flowers at his feet that I mentioned to you. And he said, in all the world, I am the chief. And this is as a little baby, literally, as in the Quranic Jesus in a cradle. Find yet other books that Buddha is supposed to have spoken at his birth. And this floats around. And you say, well, how did the Quran manage to borrow something from Buddhist literature? Well, Buddhism was far more widespread in those days than it is today. In fact, we even know that Buddhism once was the religion of Afghanistan. And it wasn't long ago that the Taliban destroyed some of the big Buddhist statues surviving there. But that Buddhist uh, tradition, that Buddhist mythology of a, a religious figure speaking from the cradle creeps into the uh, apocryphal Christian literature and it's really apocryphal stuff. It's, it's stuff not even like the Gnostic text, not even given any credibility whatsoever. The uh, Arabic gospel of the infancy, just a purely mythological work, gets in there and finds its way into the Quran as well. Well, we could go on and on, but enough evidence to show that the Quran uh, as a book, if it was the word of Allah, you would not expect to find all these different sources and origins, 
different mythologies, and most of all, complete confusion about personalities as we find in the Quran.